Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognized the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. What if Charles Eames, Buckminster Fuller, and Sam Maloof were surfing buddies? That is the question California-based object designer and artist Eric Trine poses when describing his work. His product designs range anywhere from powder-coated geometric side tables leather-woven chairs over a brass-plated frame, to sculpturally-driven plant holders, and are all equal parts playful and casual. Eric works in the classic California modern style, and each of his pieces has a signature West Coast feel. They are clean, bright, fun, and approachable. While in LA, we sat down for a conversation on design history, West Coast modernism, and the color pink. And now, let's go beyond this point. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited. So I read in an interview online that you started designing at a really early age, just out of high school. What were these early design experiences like? I've had this slow evolution, and when I think about design and designing, I feel like I'm still getting a grasp on what that means as, as a discipline. But the discipline of making has always been part of who I am. And I went to an arts high school and we had majors and I was in this, the major I was in was called production design. So we did set design and lighting um, for the stage and for theater. And I would, when I was in high school, I would see these guys. Um, I was like 15, 16 years old using power tools all day long. And I was playing sports and I was like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. Like they get to just make stuff every day. So I joined the program basically so I could just use power tools every day and make stuff. And and we had like 85 productions during a school year. So we were constantly like making new sets, tearing them down, repainting, setting up lighting. So it was a real education of materials, but also we need to slap this thing together and it needs to communicate something to an audience. Um, so when I look across my history, I realize that that kind of education was set a foundation. Um, and when I finished high school, I just, I started making paintings. Um, I started a little clothing line where I would screen print shirts for bands. And so there was always this thread of making stuff. Um, and it wasn't until later until after undergraduate and I did a sculpture degree that it circled back around to like furniture when I first got married. And uh, my wife and I were like, we need stuff, but we don't have any money. <laughs> so it was just a series of a bunch of DIYs. So that's how I think, in a very concise way, how things circled back to a kind of design thing. But uh, that through line of making uh, was always really present as well. So what exactly uh, is the component or the components that separate making and designing or is it just a, a way of thinking about what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, if I were to describe my, myself, people often use that analogy of uh, like a jack of all trades or like, oh, here's a guy who like wears a lot of different hats. And I think of myself that I wear one hat, 
but that hat has three like bills. So like a baseball hat cap has that like bill that goes out to shade. So I picture it having three of them. And, and so the same cap is on my head, but I just rotate the like label or like the logo. And it's, I, this might be hard to visualize as I'm describing it, but it's like, it's the same guy, but I'm like, switch it around. This is design, Eric. This is art, Eric. This is like just making guy. And it's all the central thing is, is making for me. And so you're, so you're a maker first. Yeah. I think that drives the way I, I think, and I approach design, um, is that largely my hands are on everything I do initially. And I think the design distinction comes in where I have to communicate what I've made in a way. And so you can take a plank of wood and put it on four legs um, and it can be a thing or like we've come to call it a table. And so there's this context in design, um, I think, where like an object becomes an image and that image we have a name for and it's the image of a table. And you can kind of push into that or pull away from that based on how much you want to communicate that kind of like imageness. Um, so a table is a flat surface elevated to a certain height. And we have different heights for desks and dining tables and coffee tables. And then we have different ways of getting that surface to that height. And, and the moves that we make in that kind of communicate different aesthetics or design ideas. Um, so in the history kind of, of, of tables, I mean, you can just very easily look at, you know, an idea of Baroque or Rococo or Victorian and, and then you have the modern era, and, but they are all communicate. They're at, everybody made tables, everybody made chairs. They were just kind of communicating different things at the time. So I think that communication aspect is an attribute in design that might be separate from making. If you had to categorize your design into a certain genre, would it be modernism? I think it'd be modernism. I, I really appreciate the philosophies and tenets of modernism. And I think it's more of like a mid-century modernism um, because modernism oftentimes, because mid-century modernism is so such a buzz-worthy kind of phrase that we forget that modernism started a lot earlier than the middle of the century. And even Art Deco was part of modernism. And so the kind of middle of the century and especially in American history and after World War II and this kind of focusing on the middle class and having these aesthetics that were stripped down and more affordable and accessible is a side of modernism that I really connect with because I get that the designers had a really pragmatic and direct approach to saying like, oh, this is just supposed to like benefit your life in a really direct way. And you could pick it up at your local Sears or, or what, whatever it was, but. The value of design often hinges on things like this idea of being elevated uh, or unobtainable or, or special. How do you balance those things with this idea of accessibility? Or, the, or do those things even matter to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because on the on the production side of things, I don't think about that special value extra thing 
really it's something that ends up playing out in almost like the art direction the marketing the styling or just the way it fits in kind of the economy of design objects because in my in my process i've rarely set out to design an actual thing with a name like a table or a chair what has happened is i've kind of happened upon or stumbled upon or played in a way in my studio by you know i do a lot of metal work so metal production really lends itself to quick fabrication welding is like a hot glue gun for adults so you can grab these pieces and put them together very quickly and build up a physical idea you know one of my side tables has a 24 inch round disc of sheet steel on top and it has this geometric base it's in the shape of an octahedron which is a platonic solid but when i started welding triangles together i was like oh, I found a new shape. And then turns out in the history of math, it's like been there the whole time. And it's like part of sacred geometry and it has a name and there's all sorts of meaning and associations with it. And and I was like, I made a new thing. And then in parentheses, like to me, um, I made a new thing to me. And um, I was like, what a weird, magical little shape. And then once I had that shape, I realized, oh, if I scaled it up, and I put a disc on top, I've got a side table, or scaled it down, and, and, and so that directness of play and kind of responding to the object and making in the moment, then this kind of application came in. And I think that's where that making and playing meets design. Um, and so there was a specialness there, but it was a result of playtime rather than trying to design specialness as like a selling feature for a side table or rather than looking at the landscape of side tables in the market and going you know what gap i could fill is the 24 inch round disc with geometric base like there's not one of those around i'm going to make that so that's that's never been my approach i i know i have friends and fashion industry who will put together a mood board and they'll start with like the feeling or the vibe and and they'll pull all of these images and they're like this is what we want to go for this is the feeling we want to create and they start from there and i start much more at play and material exploration and then add functionality later that's really been my approach so but I think those special qualities that you speak of are embedded in there because they were there at the first moment. Um, but I, I don't kind of design for them. Do you think that the way that people interact with the design and integrate into their lives, do you think that's evolving or changing? I think so. Um, there's, there's a great kind of tidbit in this industrial design book that I read that I can't remember, but the idea is that kind of our matters of like taste and what we want in our lives, we're kind of constrained by the market, like what's available through the market. And unless you build everything yourself, as far as furniture goes, or you make all your own clothing, you know, we participate in this kind of consumer um, economy where there's producers and there's consumers, and then there's varying degrees in between there, um, especially with, you know, DIYs and hackability 
And um, so there's, there's, there's a spectrum there. But, you know, I had this vision for a flowery, like kind of Hawaiian shirt that I've been wanting for years. Like, I just, I know what it looks like in my mind. I have a vision for it. And no one's made it yet. And, but it's like, what, it's like a really weird thing because I know as soon as I see it, I'm like, that's the shirt. And I will buy it immediately off the rack. But I have an idea of a shirt that I want. That no, It's like the floral print isn't really right yet or the fit or the cut. But I know that there's a shirt out there that I'm kind of looking for. And I think in furniture, we do that same kind of thing. We have this powerful moment where we encounter an object and we're like, that's it. That's the table I want. And you almost don't know it until you encounter it for the first time and, and you see it and you're like, that's, that's the thing I want. And I think that's kind of the powerful thing about furniture or the power of objects is that they somehow sit outside um, our stories or the, our meaning making and then it kind of encounter, we encounter them at the exact time. So rather than starting with story, which a lot of is how we market things these days is sharing the story, which I think is totally important. But I think story should always be behind an object, not in front of it and not in your face. Um, there's a scene from the movie Napoleon Dynamite that I reference a lot. And it's when Uncle Rico is trying to sell this couple a Rubbermaid set. Of, of stuff and he goes you can buy this entire kit and and when you do you get this and he pulls this like giant model ship out of this cardboard box and he sets it on the table and it's like 30 inches i mean it's this massive thing and and the lady leans over to her husband and kind of under her breath she goes i want that and she just she just looks at that ship and she just has this moment where she's like, I want that ship. I'll buy all the Rubbermaid or the Tupperware or whatever it is because I want that. And I think that that moment is magical and it's not something you can exactly design for. But when that on the production side and you bring an object to market, then you kind of provide that opportunity for that encounter with a consumer. I've um, actually felt that way when looking at your stuff. Yeah. I thought that. I want that. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> but it's it's like a weird thing. Like I it's not something I can necessarily control. I mean, I have an idea about something I want to make and and I kind of start like I would like that. Um and I would make that for myself. Probably people in my tribe, my aesthetic design consumer person tribe. Um I'm willing to bet they're going to say the same thing. And then I use the internet to connect with them <laughs> or them connect with me. And so you have that moment like, yeah, I want that. And I was like, well, I know you do because I wanted it too. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I close my eyes and I picture your work, uh, three things come to mind, shape, color, and materials. Mm -hmm. um, we've already kind of talked about materials a little bit, but how do these things kind of all fit together? Which comes first? Hmm. I break it down even further, um, you know, with shape. Definitely with shape, I th break it down to line. Um, if I was a 2D artist and I'm working with lines and I'm working with planes, I start with lines and I think through lines and then the lines come together and they create kind of planes. 
and you put four lines together with 90 degree angles and you have a rectangle and that's a plane and then you can move that plane but I really think through lines um, first and lately I've been taking lines that are very geometric and then composing them with circles and circular planes um, like I spoke about the other side table and I'm really interested in how those things work together but you know I have a daughter she's two and a half and she has blocks and we have all these play things and there's just something really direct with that kind of thing like okay we have circles we have cylinders we have cones we have I mean it's like these basic things that we've had in our hands our whole lives that we played with and I just go yeah that circle looks good on top of that thing and the proportions fit so there's a simplicity and almost like a child child's play kind of approach with shape and form and then with color again it's it's kind of a constraint a market constraint thing is the way I think about it and when I go look at the colors that are available at a paint supplier or a powder coater because I powder coat all these steel pieces I look at all these chips and then I look at what's actually in the market and I think hey there's all of these colors here but like why do things just come in like black white gray and then we have these yearly pops of color and a lot of people responding to like the Pantone color of the year and then all of a sudden you'll see these mass retailers like launch their rose blush pink or something and it becomes this markety zeitgeist moment i have to say whenever my favorite color becomes a pantone color of the year it's over right <laughs> yeah i felt that way when i first discovered the band arcade fire and then everyone else did and i was like i hate them <laughs> i don't i'm i don't want to listen to them anymore because everyone else is. there's like almost like a weird moment there but when i look at colors and i think i just go i like that color I'm going to make something in that color and I'm going to see if other people like it. And I, I just really directly think if I like it, other people will like it. I love on your site that everything is available in, in quite a few different color options. Right. And so what you wind up doing is you wind up like seeing the piece and then just imagining it in all these different colors. And I also love that. Um, can we just talk about, I think we have a mutual love for light pink. Yeah, I yeah. love light pink. Yeah, it's one of my faves. It's so good. Um, and that's a, I, I think that's an odd choice. I, in fact, I don't, I can't think of anybody else that's offering furniture and, and, and light pink right now. Right. And there's a really good light pink in the powder coating spectrum. And, you know, but I also, when I think about it and I think about the individual object and doing it light pink, it's because I'm then picturing it in a space and I think about the size of it and how it relates to an interior. And I think about how people would give themselves permission to have that in their space. If you did an entire interior in light pink, that might be problematic. It would be a great gallery installation mm -hmm. and it would make the rounds on Pinterest like crazy. Um, but, you know, small individual objects can, you can give yourself permission to have light pink or a mint green or a really saturated cobalt blue because your whole house isn't that. David Byrne actually wrote a really amazing article. I think it's for Cabinet Magazine and it's on the evolution of the color pink. Interesting. And apparently it used to be, because um, now it's kind of considered a uh, feminine color. Right. 
but at one point it was um, it was a masculine color. It was because it's such a dynamic color, and I don't think I'm, I don't think the the incarnation that they were speaking of was maybe light pink, but just just a standard pink. It was considered like a light red, which was mm -hmm. considered a masculine color. And right. I think it's really interesting how different time periods, the context of living in a certain time can really right. kind of skew you from being able to see things in its pure form. Right. And I think what's I think that light pink is is a beautiful color and I think right. being able to see it incarnated in a coffee table dispels any sort of gender association. Right. Right. You can just appreciate it for what a beautiful color it is. Exactly. And not a lot of stuff comes in those colors. So you know, my one of my favorite things is when I do something in a color and someone sees it and for the first time they're like, oh my gosh, I never would have picked that, but here it is. I love it. Mm -hmm. And um, Like I love your sage green too. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited about that color. But yeah, to that kind of conversation about color, I get super jazzed about it because color is amazing and it's powerful and we don't as a whole like a mass market we kind of haven't given ourselves permission to go there and i think it's hard to use color from in any design kind of discipline from architecture all the way to graphic design i mean you can get color really really wrong i haven't had the same success with reds i'm not sure what my position is on red, but pastels, I'm good. That new sage green, I love. I've got my favorite blue. Not sure where I stand on reds. So uh, you just took part in the West Coast Design Showcase, which is uh, celebrating a handful of West Coast designers. It was uh, presented by Paquetto and curated by Join Design. Do you consider yourself part of a West Coast design movement? Yes. Hardcore, yes. <laughs> um, yes, and I, I want to be actually, you know, a voice in the West Coast design movement. Um, there is a distinct kind of way historically that West Coast designers um, kind of approached all of design and kind of architecture history, but certainly in the mid-century modern era, um, you know, you see it in architecture, uh, you see it in furniture. There's a great documentary called Coast Modern that came out a couple years ago and it explored architecture from, you know, California or like Baja, Mexico, all the way up to Vancouver. And there's this great quote by a gal and she said, um, you know, West Coast modernism isn't afraid to drag, drag in sand, you know, over the threshold, like into the house. And so I think there is... A feeling about West Coast design and for me West Coast modernism that is is accessible it is more casual it isn't wrapped up in this crazy status thing it's like it's more livable it's more livable right and and I think that in architecture history how we've handled light on the West Coast I often think about because I grew up near the beach I always just grew up knowing that the Sun set over the water and if I lived anywhere else in, in the United States or in the middle, I would be like sunsets over the land and or the sun rises over the water if I was an East Coaster. And I think that's just a different way of, that we've handled light. And maybe my affinity for light pink, you know, happens because I grew up near the beach and I've become accustomed to that kind of color in my life. But um, so do you think that connection to nature is a major component? Because you don't get that with, say, New York designers, or not as right. much. And I, de I know that's definitely, because there's also a, 
uh, an extension of West Coast design. There's a Northwest right. kind of design, and that's definitely like there's a there's a strong connection to nature. Right. I think there, you know, and I did graduate school in Portland, Oregon, so I I have that Pacific Northwest thing that was kind of formative to me as a designer. That was there, and when I lived in Portland, we lived close to this area called Mount Tabor. And every morning I'd open the door and it smelled like I was camping and it was just amazing. Um, and then growing up down here in Orange County in Southern California, I grew up in, if the wind was coming in from onshore, it smelled like the beach every single morning and you get that salt. And I think that nature is a big part of the equation, but I don't know with what I'm seeing now in this West Coast design moment is it's not about here's nature, let me put it in front of you because it's a giant slab of walnut, you know, thing. And like, here's nature in your house. It's more about the livability and that relationship of the architecture and and your design and kind of embracing it and being embedded in it and around it, but not in like a gimmicky way. And kind of um, mid-century modern architecture, you see the windows and houses wrapped in, in windows. And there's a architect named Cliff May who did a huge um, area in Long Beach and um, where I live. And the way he set the houses on the lot and the way he set the windows in the rooms, he created vignettes for the gardens around the house. So any room that you live in in the house if, if you're the kids or the master bath or the master bedroom, there's always these little portals to outside and they create these spaces that are just deep enough where you couldn't, that's not like your main outside area, but there's enough to do something there, like put a chair and a garden and beautiful gravel. But you look at and you get this moment, each room in the house. And that to me is what I think about when this kind of connection with nature and um you know specifically in southern california there's so much development and there's so much sprawling suburbanism and and all that so a lot of it is and we live in a desert um so a lot of it's manufactured a lot of it's landscaped um but you know we've got the beach here we've got the mountains growing up one time we got up super early we went up to the mountains and snowboarded and we got back down the mountain and went surfing in the afternoon in one day. And that's kind of a magical thing that you can only do here. But it's it's embedded in, in the entire lifestyle. It just feels natural to be in and around nature. Um, yeah, a, a seamless kind of lifestyle way. And also um, the idea of like play and recreation being right. part of that lifestyle, which um, is something that's really inherent in your work. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of, like, I'm thinking of your woven chair, and I love the kind of, there's this slight nod to almost like patio furniture, but in this mm-hmm. really sophisticated, right. deconstructed way, which I love. Thank you. Yeah, that chair is, that chair is an interesting one because it is, it's a woven leather chair, so it operates in this aesthetic that is like lawn chair and lawn furniture and that we've known f- forever. And then you know, but it's woven leather and it's a lot of really nice and expensive leather. And so, so you have that, that high low juxtaposition, right? Right. Exactly. Um, but it's an economical use of leather as well. I can get way more straps out of a side of leather than I can if I did a giant sling. Um, and it kind of cradles you, um, 
in a different way, but it is an indoor chair, you know, but it operates on that kind of indoor outdoor aesthetic. I don't know where I'm supposed to put this, but you, you have to put it indoor. <laughs> yeah. Another trait of the West coast lifestyle is this, um, uh, the seasons being a little more subtle. Could you talk about how that informs your work? Right. Yeah, there's this thing in, you know, fashion, right, about wearing white and you wear it between Memorial and Labor Day and, and, and things like that. But it doesn't really work in a, in a place that you don't have as much seasonality that feels odd. So you have this year-round approach. So typically in spring around Easter time, you see this surge in soft colors and in pastels and, and all of that. But spring ish climate specifically in southern california sticks around most of the year so um you can bring that spring kind of look to the middle of october and it makes sense or you can take that really bold palette that autumnal bold palette and slam it into a spring palette and i think that's really interesting because in a place that has four seasons, that would seem like a juxtaposition, but here it's just that's that's normal. Like that's a move, and there you you have that lack of seasonality and these these major kind of shifts that have are kind of historic in a way in craft design and and you know definitely fashion history. I think of David Hockney. Right. Yeah. Yeah, David. I mean. David Hockney is really interesting because he uses so much color, but it's almost like it's soft. It's kind of blown out. Like it's when you try and take a picture of something in the middle of the day with sun directly overhead and it is this bright color, but then the sun is so on it that it kind of washes it out a little bit. Um, but you can't tell necessarily if he was painting these giant landscape paintings if he was doing in the middle of summer if he was doing in the middle of winter and you know the end of winter like january and and february we have these huge um bougainvillea blooms and there's you know we're in april now but they're still all over the neighborhood that we're in here today in silver lake um california and there's there's tons of bougainvillea and that is a vibrant really rich saturated and i would say some of them are it's like really dark maroon and that's a spring that's a late winter and then spring bloom and so you have that kind of mix too um in the natural palette so going back to your um your three built hat mm -hmm. design yes. art and making i know that the design component you have that this idea of history mm -hmm. this idea of design history how do you see what you're doing as fitting into that history? Hmm. Like a hybrid of industrial designer and studio craftsman. And that's where I would locate myself is that because part of my approach to design is having stuff in-house, we develop it. I am a maker to the core and I have machinery, um, but I also partner with manufacturers here in Los Angeles who can hit higher numbers of production, who have a kind of mass production approach dialed in. So there's a side table of mine that I make that we sold almost 2,000 of them last year. And there's no way I could have done that in-house and offered it for a $299 retail price point. So I've partnered with manufacturers who have machines and the man manpower and it's systemized 
and strategic and down to each move that they make, they know how much it costs. And so they're able to give me this price. And um, What's the most challenging part of, of partnering with someone else to kind of like achieve your creative vision? Um, there, Production there's a, wise. Yeah, there's a couple things. One of them is just keeping a hand on quality control mm-hmm. um, and making sure that each piece is perfect. I mean, I, I definitely think quality is the big thing. And then for me, the local component is really important um, because there are fantastic manufacturers all over the globe and regions in China that specialize in wood production. And there's regions that spe- specialize in metal and any brass stuff that we have overseas is all made in India. And you have these kind of embedded histories where, you know, in recent histories, but people are really good at producing and they can produce at very high quality. They can produce at any quality that you specify, actually, um, depending on the retail price point that you want to hit. But one of the things that's important to me about local is I can just drive over and talk to my guys and have my my hands and my eyes on the production, and then we can get a beer at the end of the day, and which is a special kind of unique relationship that for my scale um, is, is what I can afford to do. If I was going to manufacture overseas, then I, either I would need to be there or I'd have to hire someone to be there. And my, my dad was in sales for um, the tool industry um, forever. And and I grew up with him going to China all the time um, for a week or two sometimes. And, and it's, and no judgment to my father in any way, but it's kind of like, as a dad, that's not the thing that I want to do. And it was just part of his job. And he was part of a larger kind of corporation. And that was his role there. And he was the guy who had to go check on that and have sales meetings and, and all of that stuff. But the way I'm setting it up is keeping it local and manageable and I'm home at six o'clock for dinner and I have my weekends off and, and all of, and all of that. And so, you know, I'd love that I get to do this and I get to manage it on that small level and that we can produce quality products here in Los Angeles. Um, and also this, um, this idea of this kind of direct connection, right. um, this lifestyle that you're creating, it's part of your brand identity too. Right. Um, as you get bigger, do you ever worry that you'll have to sacrifice that at all? I think that I'll definitely have to make changes, but one of the moments I think that we're at in design history is I think the previous 15, 20, 30 years is that the big manufacturers and the big makers and the big brands were really able to call the shots and say like, this is the system. If you want to be a player in this market, this is the way you have to produce. And I think things are really changing. And myself and and the people participating in this West Coast Design Showcase are people saying, well, we're figuring out other ways that we can produce things and make things and get them to market. And I I don't think we have to play those games anymore or participate in the system in that way. And I think that's the true spirit of entrepreneurism is... Um, like the rules don't apply. Um, Do you think also being like so personally connected to every aspect of your business, mm -hmm. production, um, marketing, um, and it being such a, such a, a 
personal effort. Mm -hmm. Do you think that then translates to consumers having a more personal connection to your product? Yeah, I think, I think that there's like a magic component there. And I think that there's whatever we kind of invest in a brand or a product on the front end, somehow through the magic, I think of brand, because I think there's a way to disparage talking about brand and branding. And sometimes it gets to be a dirty word, but the real power of it is that it's bigger than itself. And so I think if I infuse energy into my brand and a product on the front end, it somehow transfers. And maybe it is through actual magic um, that like comes on the back end, but, or it, it's a way of just creating this experience and my enthusiasm and energy really transcends the whole scope of the business and the brand. And so I bring as much energy into product design and research and development and the marketing, storytelling, sales aspect of it. Um, and then this very human side, which I communicate through Instagram, where I'm actually just a dorky guy who is like normal and I want to hang out with my family and run a business and like I do dance videos and make jokes and and so it's that entire component and something that a huge company could really never do. I feel like the way that you use Instagram, I mean, it's amazing. It's kind of what Instagram was made for. When did you kind of stumble upon this as it would be such an effective platform for what you're doing? Right. Well, I, before Instagram, I was on Twitter and I used Twitter almost as a way to like document my studio time. You know, some of it started out of ego and narcissism because I think when you're approaching the world as, as a fine artist, you have to think not only about what you're making, but like when I have my retrospective, when I'm 80 years old, I need to make sure I provided all the backlog documentation, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and growing up to museum, growing up going to museum retrospectives and seeing the Rauschenberg retrospective and the Warhol, and you're like, oh, here are his sketches and his drawings. So some of it was like, I've got to keep all of this. I've got to document it well. And Twitter was a great tool for me to document what I'm doing in my studio time when I was making paintings and doing sculptures out of undergrad. And then when Instagram came along, I was like, oh, this is great because it's like a photo archive. And I'm just a diligent and disciplined documentarian of my own work. So whatever I'm working on, I'm photographing it. And so it was part of like a studio practice discipline. But then that social component really kicked in and started gaining ground and could get feedback and response. And I was like, this is an amazingly powerful tool. And so I just realized the way I was using it was I want to see good content pop up on my feed when I check my phone. And, and so I want to provide that consistently. So I kind of switched and I said, okay, I'm just going to make sure I'm going to take better photos. And in my kind of industry, in the furniture industry, there's a thing, especially for woodworkers, where they try and show their shop and the project they're working on, like it accidentally like looks perfect all the time. And, and like sawdust spins off this thing that way and all their tools are laid out perfectly. And it's kind of like a weird craftsman porn kind of thing. And I realized when I was in Portland that here's guys with huge beards 
showing how big craftsmen they are. And I'm a guy who always shaves and I'm from California. And I realized in a moment, like I'm branding myself visually every time I share uh, a photo. And so I just became diligent with it. And rather than pretending like I wasn't setting up photos, I just set them up. I was like, yeah, clearly I arranged that and put a plant on it and a piece of colored poster board um, around it because this is a total composition. So I just very, I just pivoted and made it a little bit more strategic and not heavy handed, but just like, I'm going to take the extra couple minutes and do this thing right. And um, it's just organically snowballed because I've been on Instagram for almost six years and it's been slow growth. Um, and then when video started, I realized here's another way that I can communicate what I'm doing. Through, and through dance. Through dance, yeah. <laughs> and just like joking around and dancing around and, and having fun. Be, and there's, it's just, you know, if you want to go look at perfect f photographs of my products, go to my website. If you want a little bit more behind the scenes, come visit me on Instagram. And, and I've just continued to give myself permission to be almost more behind the scenes and let my personality come out even more. And, um, which is what, you know, I'm dancing in the studio all the time and I'm singing all the time. And I'm like, this is me. Um, but there's an entertainment factor there. Well, and I think you mentioned before, um, you know, marketing sometimes is, it's a dirty word. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it is when we're talking about big brands kind of staking their claim on any space that's available. But I think with Instagram, where you have independent artists, independent studios who are making work, you get to see kind of behind the scenes, what they're all about, and you get to have this direct connection. Mm -hmm. And I think if this is prompting people to buy from independent designers, right. I think it's I think mar marketing is, is great. It's right. fantastic. A lot of marketing is positioning, and it's positioning within a market. And so back to what I was saying about finding kind of kinship within the work that I do and you, you connecting with it, it's in a lot of ways because you're part of my tribe. And I realized with Instagram, I go, who, who are the people on Instagram? And I go, oh, it's people like me. And they are design and tech savvy on the like, you know, me on the cusp of like generation X and a millennial and you know, all this thing is like, we're on our phones all the time and we're looking for great content and it's just gets delivered right to us. And so I'm going to do that because I kind of want that. And so exactly connect. And this is the way people find stuff. And if I just continue to serve it up consistently, more people will find it. Eric, cool. thanks so much for chatting with us yes. today. Yeah. That was awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.